Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 36. Last week, I touched on the concept of the cities of refuge and covered one of those places, Golan, along with a somewhat well-known landmark there, the misnamed Daughters of Jacob Bridge. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with another, Kedesh, and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. Kedesh is in the far northern reaches of the modern country of Israel, on its border with Lebanon. The ruins of this ancient Canaanite city are located about two miles, three kilometers northeast of the modern Kabbutz Malkia, almost due north of the Sea of Galilee, in a stone's throw from the modern city of Dan, meaning about 10 miles, 17 kilometers from that place. And remember that the cities of refuge were likely supposed to be relatively spread out, making their placement vital so that the accused Hebrew murderer could somewhat easily reach them. In my mind, this likely means they were not at the fringe of the territory. In other words, given that this one was located in the far north of the territory, in a region allocated to Naphtali, it was probably a signal that the Israelites were expected to gain territory even further to the north. Unfortunately, from the rest of the Old Testament narrative, it appears that they did not, as the Hittites would control the land just beyond Dan. And, in fact, in thinking back a couple of episodes, when the territory was allocated, that city, Dan, wasn't even in the allotment. So, Kedesh was on the very fringe, though it was somewhat close to what was likely sparsely populated territory of Asher. An unusual location choice. Earlier in the history, it may have been the site of a fortification that was defeated by the Israelites when they were being led by Joshua. After Joshua, and in the period of the judges, and according to Jewish tradition, Deborah the prophetess, Barak the son of Abinayim, and Yael, the wife of Eber the Kenite, along with Eber himself, were buried beneath the spring beneath the town of Kedesh, which gives a small clue as to its location. But then again, that's tradition, and not based on the biblical text. Also, in that same part of the narrative, in Judges 4, the great oak tree in Zanaim is said to be near Kedesh. There is the possibility that this oak tree, though, was at a different place with a similar name. In that case, a second Tel Kedesh, this one located about two miles, over three kilometers, south of Megiddo, which would place it in the territory of the tribe of Issachar. The remaining mentions in the text are of a geographic landmark sort, though several do remark about the pasture lands, and that's Kedesh as found in the Old Testament. In the outside record, there are the usual artifacts indicating occupation even before the Israelites showed up. Then, in the 8th century BC, and also during the reign of the not-so-well-known King Pekah of Israel, the legendary Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III conquered Kedesh. He also captured Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. But he wasn't quite done, having the residents deported to Assyria. 
Soon after this, King Pika would be killed in a palace conspiracy. This bit of history can be found in 2 Kings 15. And there's something else in this part of that book. A little nugget. From the text. Hosea conspired against Pekah, attacked, and killed him. Then Hosea reigned as king. But what I'm more interested in, at least for now, is what's mentioned next. The rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. Wait, what? The book of the annals of the kings of Israel. Is this another lost book of the Bible? Maybe. I'll get to that book in a minute. Back in Kedesh, and in the 5th century BC, it may have become the capital for the Persian-controlled province of Upper Galilee. This is somewhat supported by a late 20th century, early 21st century excavation led by the University of Michigan, which uncovered an administrative building dating to the Persian and Greek eras. The Persians gave way to the Greeks, who, in the 2nd century BC, were embroiled in a fight with the Maccabees. As part of Jonathan Maccabeus's fight against the Seleucid king Demetrius II Nicator, Kadesh was captured. After this, it was largely abandoned. This was supported by the writings of Eusebius, who described the city as a priestly city in the inheritance of Naphtali. Previously, it was a city of refuge. The king of the Assyrians destroyed it. This is Kydissos, 20 Roman miles from Tyre, near Peneus. So, Eusebius gave it a slightly different name and an approximate location. As for the specific location, it's never really been nailed down and has been the subject of a long-standing archaeological and historical debate. While many believe the ancient site to be in Upper Galilee, near the Lebanese border, a modern Israeli archaeologist maintains that it was instead located in Lower Galilee, near the Jezreel Valley, at a site that bears the same name. Overall, though, this is a bit of a minority opinion. And that's Kedesh. If you'll allow me a bit of grace, I'd like to take a few minutes and cover the lost book I mentioned earlier. The Chronicles of the Kings of Israel is sometimes called the Book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel or the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. It's thought to give more detailed accounts of the reigns of the kings of the ancient kingdom of Israel than that presented in the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Old Testament. This conclusion is drawn from the references to it in various parts of the Old Testament, like the one I mentioned about King Pekah. It may also have been the source from which parts of the biblical account were drawn. The current thinking is that the book was compiled by, or at least derived, from the various kings of Israel's royal scribes. It also may be one of the sources of many of the historical facts presented in the Old Testament. As a lost book, the source text has not been directly recovered. This may stem from it never having been part of the overall narrative of the biblical text, or it was removed from it at some stage. There are a couple other similarly titled books that fall into the same category, including the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah and the Book of the Kings of Judah in Israel. This last book is referred to in 2 Chronicles 
and may be the same as the other two accounts named in the book of Kings. I'll get to all of those when I get to those. As for this book, references to it can be found in the book of Kings and imply that the description of the reigns of the kings of Israel presented in the Bible is only a brief summary and that a fuller account is to be found in the book. This is very evident in 2 Kings 15, which, in just over 1,000 words, covers the reigns of seven kings in a period that spans over 50 years and includes the invading Assyrians, a king being struck by leprosy, along with murder and intrigue. Obviously, much more than 1,000 words can do justice to. As for the other references, they also lend credence to the claim that a more detailed history of the kings of this period can be found in the Lost Book. First Kings mentions that the rest of the Acts of Jeroboam, how he warred, and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Again, 1 Kings 16 reads, Now the rest of the Acts of Elah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? 1 Kings does the same for Zimri, also telling us that this lost text relays the treason that Zimri wrought. 2 Kings 1 mentions the book. Now the rest of the Acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? At that time, that was likely a literal question. Now, it's little more than rhetorical, as it was for King Jeroboam II, along with how he dealt with the king of Israel, Minanoam. And, considering that this is a podcast devoted nearly exclusively to the history found in, and parallel to the text, the loss of this book is rather significant, and leaves me with little choice but to move on and get back to the book of Joshua. The last city of refuge I'm covering is Ramoth, which was located in Gilead. At least, that's how it's described in the text. More commonly, especially outside of the text, it's simply described as being Ramoth-Gilead. Whichever one you choose, it translates as the Heights of Gilead. So, from the name alone, we can deduce that it was likely on a tell. And, to be fair, the actual name, hence much of the confusion, can be placed in many of the translations, with some listing it like it's found in the New Revised Standard, and others that run the gamut, all the way to Ramoth Galad. Whichever one, it was in the territory allotted to Gad, placing it east of the Jordan, south of the Sea of Galilee, and just north of the Dead Sea. First Kings tells us that the town was where one of King Solomon's regional governors operated out of, a governor named Ben Geber. This likely means it was either centrally located or rather sizable, at least at the time. From here, Ben Geber would oversee, or at least administer, some 60 large cities, of which many had walls and bronze gates. Like so many of the places to the east of the Jordan, along with those in the general north of the Israelites' territory, Ramoth would fall to the Arameans. In reality, and given where it was located, control of the city likely went back and forth between the Arameans and Israel. All of this, or at least most, was when Ahab was the king of Israel. 
So was the fate of cities on the border. Specifically, when Ahab was king, he thought about going to battle with the Arameans to win it back, to the point that he consulted with prophets about the odds of success. After this consultation, Ahab went to fight for Ramuth, aided by Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. During the battle, Ahab was wounded by an arrow. He was propped up in his chariot facing the enemy, all to no avail. By the evening, Ahab had bled out, dying on the battlefield, and the Arameans emerged victorious. There's more to this tale, and that's that all of the prophets told Ahab he would defeat the Arameans. Well, all except one, and that one was Micaiah. Turns out Ahab was listening to the wrong prophets. There's much more to the story, and I may get to it at some point in the future. In a different fight, against essentially the same enemy, Ahab's son Joram, who was his father's successor to the throne, would be wounded at Ramoth, though unlike his father, he didn't die in the battle and would instead head to Jezreel to recuperate. Later, and also in Ramoth, the prophet Elisha told another prophet to anoint Jehu, Joram's commander, as the king of Israel. And that's it in the text. The outside record offers little more than that, and it really isn't that much more. So, I'll only take a minute. British Bible scholar Hugh Schoenfeld speculated that the location of Armageddon, mentioned only in Revelation, is a Greek transliteration of a proposed late Aramaic name for Ramoth Gilead. That this location, having previously been in the territory of Gad, was part of the later Greek region known as the Decapolis. Then it gets a bit involved. Schoenfeld theorized that Ramoth Gad, translated into Greek, became Armageddon. This is somewhat similar to when Ramathaim translated to Aramatium. And that's it in the outside record. And with that, we turn to page Joshua 21, which walks through all of the other cities spread throughout Israel that were given to the Levites. These are in addition to the specifically named cities of refuge I just covered. Most of these, though, go unnamed and instead merit mentions that are usually phrased such as the Jershonites received by Lot 13 towns from the families of the tribe of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan. In nearly all of these cases, the Levites not only were allotted the named and unnamed towns, but also the pasture land around these places. There are several places that get mentioned by name, and like I've done recently, I'll cover those with enough history to make it interesting. But keep in mind that while many are listed, most of the history about them has been lost to the passage of time. First up is Libna. At the time the Israelites showed up, Libna is generally regarded as having been either a fully independent, or at least semi-independent city likely near the coast in what is today the modern country of Israel. Its position and future mentions infer that it was on a trade route, as it seems to have produced income for the tribe of Judah, the tribe that would come to control the area around it. The town would rebel against King Jehoram of Judah in the 9th century BC, 
The reason for the rebellion can be found in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The text gives a fairly succinct summary of why the revolt occurred. From the text, and with my usual paraphrasing, Jehoram, sometimes recorded with the alternate rendering of Joram, was 32 years old when he became king and reigned for eight years from Jerusalem. He did as the previous kings of Israel had done, which wasn't surprising, as he was of the same character. I'll get to the specifics on what he did in about a minute. The daughter of one of the previous kings, Ahab, was his wife. And, most importantly, what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Despite this, God would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant and the much earlier King David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his descendants forever. While he was king, Edom revolted against Judah, establishing a kingship of their own. Then Jehoram crossed over to Zer with all his chariots. Zer is sometimes rendered as Zor, but whichever one you choose, its location is unfortunately largely unknown. Back in the text, Jehoram would set out by night and attack the Edomites and their chariot commanders who had surrounded him. This mission failed when his army fled back to their homes. From that point forward, Edom was in revolt against the rule of Judah to the day that the text was recorded. Then we get to the reason I'm mentioning the history of this particular king. While all of this was occurring, Libna revolted too. Why? Because Jehoram had forsaken the Lord, the God of his ancestors. Then we're told something else. The rest of the history of Jehoram can be found in the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Judah, one of the lost books from earlier in this episode and meriting another mention. Later, in the 7th century BC, Josiah, the king of Judah, would marry Hamutel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Two of their sons, namely Jehoaz and Zedekiah, would also become kings of Judah. 2 Kings 19 recounts the story of when the Assyrian king Sennacherib invaded Judah. This is a really complex part of the narrative and only tangentially involves Libna so I'll save it for a later episode. Just know that whenever Judah was invaded by outside forces, many of their cities would typically be involved, and sometimes this involved Libna too. Like several of the places in this part of the narrative, the outside record is Spartan at best. For Libna, about the only other mentions come from the A.D. writers Eusebius and Jerome who both described the village as being situated in the region of Beit Gubrin and having been renamed either Lobidna or Labna. And that's it for Libna. Last for this episode is Jata, also located in Judah. It's thought to be at the same location as the modern city of Yitta, Y replacing J. If this is the case, then Jata was about 6 miles, 10 kilometers south of Hebron placing it in the general West Bank region. It was either in the hill country or in the mountains of Judah. If it was in the same place as the modern Yatta, then it's on a rather large tell. The only mentions in the Old Testament, actually in the entirety of the Bible, are in Joshua and add really nothing to the location or history of the city. 
So there must be another reason I'm covering it, right? That reason can be found in Luke 1 and has to do with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, from the text. Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. In the narrative, the city where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived is unnamed, but there is a tradition in the Greek Orthodox Church that believes that the town was Jutta, and it was the birthplace of John the Baptist. Due to this, by the end of the 19th century, every year thousands of adherents would make the pilgrimage to the city. Note that this was when it was controlled by the Ottomans. Later, when it was in the early part of the British Mandate period, in the 1920s, a German biblical archaeologist would come to the same conclusion, that it was the hometown of John the Baptist. In the outside record, there isn't really much from the B.C. period. Like most of the region, it would be fused into the Ottoman Empire in 1517. At the time, it was rather small, having only 127 families, with most probably engaged, or at least partially, in agriculture. Wheat, barley, olives, goats, and beekeeping. Edward Robinson would visit in 1838, noting little more than it being a Muslim town surrounded by trees. About 25 years later, another traveler recorded about 2,000 residents with many living in tents and scattered all over the greater area around the city. This was partly due to migrant, temporary labor living in the city and aiding in the seasonal harvest. It was also due to many of the younger men attempting to avoid the Ottomans' military draft. Given that I touched on this a few episodes ago, but from about 10 years later, it seems the Ottomans were likely persistently attempting to conscript soldiers from the region. Another report from a couple decades later described Yada as being a large village standing high on a ridge, built largely from stone. The water supply was stored in cisterns. On one side there were rock-cut tombs. Rock-cut wine presses could be found throughout the village. The area was extremely stony. South of the village were scattered olive trees. Other olive and fig groves can be found scattered in various parts around the village. Sheep and goat flocks abounded, along with cattle, camels, horses, and donkeys. South of the village were several tombs, one with a shallow, semicircular arch cut above a small square entrance. In the early 20th century, a 2nd century AD Jewish burial complex was uncovered in the town. The Ottomans gave way to the British Mandate, and after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, it would become part of the Kingdom of Jordan, at least until 1967's Six-Day War. As part of this exceedingly short conflict, the town, along with the West Bank, would come to be controlled by the nation of Israel. Since that time, and like much of the West Bank, the area has been embroiled in constant strife, mostly between the Israeli government and various Palestinian groups. As for the modern residents, they skew Palestinian, which is not in the least bit surprising. What is surprising, and this may mark the first time you've run across this, 
But among these various Palestinian groups are some who believe they originate from the southwestern Arabian Peninsula, specifically a Jewish kingdom, and therefore are descended from ancient Jewish tribes, meaning that before these people converted to Islam sometime in the 7th century AD or later, they were Jewish. Do note that this belief has never been substantiated, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.